Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. A few things to talk about before we jump into our conversation with our guest today. First of all, you know, we're starting to see a lot more polls at the state level in the last week. You know, I think in general, they show a pretty stable race. So that seems to be the headline of this race for many, many months uh, is how stable it is. Um, there was a couple of polls that showed Pennsylvania super close, a few out this week showing it a little wider, but, you know, within four or five points, which uh, is still too close for comfort. I think the poll that got the most attention, or at least should have, in my view, was uh, a poll of Miami-Dade County um, by a, a respected um, firm um, that does a lot of polling of the Hispanic and, and Latino community, but they looked at Miami-Dade as a county, and this is one request slash plea I have for the news media, you know, as it relates to the presidential race, um, you know, national polls tell us nothing because this is a battle of states. State polls are great, but even better is these deep dive into swing counties. So in this case, it's Miami-Dade. Um, you know, there's counties um, throughout central Florida that'll be swing counties um, where Biden is overperforming the senior citizens. Be super interesting to see some of that. You've got uh, Erie County in Pennsylvania, Northampton uh, County in Pennsylvania. Uh, you've got counties, uh, even smaller counties throughout Wisconsin um, and Michigan where you had 20 and 30 point swings uh, between 2012 and 2016. So I hope more uh, of the news media uh, and, you know, other sponsoring entities look at big county polls because it tells it a lot. But this poll showed, uh, you know, Biden in the lead in Miami-Dade, but, you know, quite a bit smaller lead than, um, you know, Obama had in both of his wins uh, and even Clinton had in 16. Now, I think... Um, if Joe Biden wins Florida, and, and right now uh, he's got a lead, but nobody ever feels comfortable in Florida, you know, it's going to be different um, coalition or at least um, strengths and weaknesses than we saw uh, with Obama and other statewide winners there on the Democratic side. He's going to do really well um, with senior voters in Florida, which, you know, is going to help him in every county, obviously. Um, but it is going to help him, I think, uh, in some of the central and northern parts of the state. Um, but where, you know, this poll seemed to suggest Biden had a lot of room to grow and need for improvement was with, uh, you know, the Latino population, which, you know, in Miami-Dade is not monolithic, but um, the Cuban uh, community there uh, is the dominant uh, sector of the Latino population. Obviously, you do still have, even though the Puerto Rican um, vote is much stronger in central Florida, you have some Puerto Rican vote there. You certainly we have Dominican vote, Haitian, you know, a lot of different communities. Um, you know, Obama was the first Democrat to win, based on exit polls, the Cuban vote in Florida by one point, if I recall, back in 2012. Uh, Trump is doing well there. Um, you know, and by the way, Rick Scott did uh, pretty well there uh, in um, as did DeSantis. Um, so, um, you know, that's a recipe for Republican win now is the ability maybe to do better down in Miami-Dade um, than we've seen in past years. But, you know, that's clearly a warning sign. And, you know, I've seen the Biden campaign comments on this. They're going to redouble their efforts and bring in new talent. They need to. Because obviously, um, you know, you don't want to offset your strength with senior citizens uh, with, um, you know, really doing um, poorly 
um, comparatively um, with a Cuban-American community. And I think Joe Biden has a terrific uh, message and, and set of policies to run there. And, you know, younger Cuban voters behave much differently uh, than their parents or grandparents. So this is another place where I think with younger Cubans, um, he's got an ability to really run up the score. So uh, still has to do persuasion, but registration and turnout's key. And again, Florida is important because it's 29 electoral votes. So it's almost a check made on Trump, not quite almost. But also, and it's frustrating to say this, um, Florida is going to count uh, probably more of their votes on election day than some of the other battlegrounds. So if Biden were to win Florida, um, that's critically important um, to cut Trump off at his knees in terms of his bullshit about, you know, the election being stolen. Speaking of bullshit and Trump, um, you know, he continues to, he was in North Carolina, I'm recording this on on Wednesday, just yesterday, uh, you know, continuing to talk about um, people voting twice and people going to, uh, you know, be poll watchers, not to help our democracy, but in a sinister way. So, um, you know, we didn't hear any of that at the convention, obviously, you know, very interestingly. Um, but now back to his Twitter feed and his speeches, this is a big part of his message. I also don't think it's going to help him, um, but it's, it's something, um, you know, that is obviously very... Um, stressful uh, for our democracy. I thought Joe Biden last week had the strongest week of his presidential campaign. He was out a lot. Um, you know, I think he was in the battleground stage, which is great to see. Um, he did a very tough press conference on Trump um, after the reports in the Atlantic article about Trump calling our uh, people who are POWs and people who died in battle uh, as losers and suckers. I, I think that's going to hurt him. I think, um, you know, maybe we'll never have absolute proof. I hope some of the people in that story come forward. But um, you know, this is believable to people. It wouldn't shock anybody um, uh, or, you know, even maybe some of his supporters. You know, that's just Trump being Trump, although this may be one that even causes them, um, you know, to be a little squeamish. Um, so, you know, again, I think Biden was out there, you know, not as like the idea of Biden, like for voters who say, you know, I'm really done with Trump. And so I like the idea of Biden. I think the reality of Biden last week was really, really strong. And I think he looked like a strong uh, potential commander in chief, someone who's going to be more sane, uh, competent, thoughtful, uh, and can calm, you know, the country down as opposed to rile it up. So I hope we see more of that uh, frequency. Again, this doesn't have to be six events a day anymore, but, you know, five, six events uh, during the week week. Um, you're putting Trump on the defensive. I think you're giving people a really positive look at who you'd be as president. So I thought that was Biden's strongest week. Now, to win the presidency, Joe Biden um, in these battleground states has to do a variety of things that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. He has to win enough swing voters. He's got to ultimately have enough uh, new registrants um, that will vote uh, for him. He's got to work really hard on turnout and also has to work to keep the third party vote down. Now, that looks like it's happening, but something you have to be mindful of so that, you know, it's more of a 51-49 or 50-49 race or 53, um, you know, 46 as opposed to what it was last time, which is 46-47. And Trump benefited from that. So Biden's got to do all that. Um, and these battleground states, you know, are very different um, than, you know, the Bay Area in California or Chicago, um, you know, Cook County, or, you know, um, Manhattan uh, in New York. Um, you know, they are um, tough places to win. And uh, I really wanted to talk to somebody who's had to be in that arena um, as a candidate to talk about the recipe to win a tough state. So we're going to talk to Claire McCaskill today, former Missouri um, United States Senator, two-term Senator, state auditor before that, a prosecutor uh, prior to that, um, good friend of mine in the, of the Obama efforts. Um, she's now a, a 
analyst on NBC and, and MSNBC, so I back before the pandemic, got to hang out with her quite a bit, which is a real joy. But I want to talk to Claire about Missouri now is not a battleground state, sadly. It was, you know, in 2008 and in election cycles before that, but we've seen it be competitive. Um, you know, she ran a tough race in 18, came up short to, to Joss Hawley, but she won it in 12, won it in 06. Uh, Jason Kander almost won it uh, in 16 uh, when Trump was rolling to a big win. So so while Missouri itself as a state, um, you know, is not a core battleground anymore, it's going to be closer this time than I think 16. Um, it has a lot of the same elements of these states, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, parts of Florida. Uh, you know, you've got to do really well in the suburban parts of St. Louis and Kansas City. You've got to drive huge turnout. You've got to keep Republican margins in the rural and exurban areas down to a manageable number. So I want to talk to Claire about all those topics and and also just get her sense of the race. So I think you'll really enjoy this uh, conversation with Senator Claire McCaskill. Senator Claire McCaskill, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thank you, David Plouffe. It's great to be with you. Last time I saw you, we were on the set of uh, MSNBC and NBC in New York, right? It seems like that was years ago, on Super Tuesday, if I recall. That's right. Um, That does seem like eons ago when we actually could uh, hang out together and (laughs) talk politics both on and off microphone. (laughs) Well, that was the night we, uh, for the most part, knew who our Democratic nominee is. So I want to start with the presidential race. I I got a lot of things I'm really excited to talk to you about. So listen, Missouri's changed through the years. It used to be a core battleground. Um, you know, your race was close in 18. Uh, Jason Kander almost won in 16 while Trump was winning the state comfortably. But Missouri is very similar. Uh, you, know, you think about a composition to a lot of battleground states. I think it's got the same share of the white population as Wisconsin. You have to figure out a way to drive turnout amongst African-Americans and Latinos, to, uh, really now maximize suburbs, but do well enough in exurban and rural areas, which is always the strength of your. So I'm just curious, as you look at the presidential race right now, um, what makes you optimistic about putting together that winning coalition for Joe Biden? And where do you think there's still work to be done? Well, I, I think um, you have to start with an important premise. It's very hard for some of my dear friends um, that are from very blue states to understand. And that is people who decide presidential elections are generally not on the far right or the far left. Right. I mean, we understand the basic important driving force of winning in terms of getting the base out. But um, even if you do a great job of getting out your base, you're going to have Obama Trump voters. You're going to have, um, you know, Romney voters. You're going to have voters that voted for John Ashcroft and a very liberal woman for lieutenant governor in the same election. There are many, many voters who make up their mind based on their sense of the candidate, where they sit at that moment in terms of their economic anxieties and their frustration, where they sit in terms of the culture war. So Joe Biden is a good nominee for our party because he is liked and respected across the country, and he is introducing himself into a political climate where chaos and a lot of lying has become a norm. And so I, I think he's going to do much better in Missouri. And, and Missouri would be a state that I would be astounded if it actually went for Joe Biden. But I'm predicting it's going to be much closer than people think it might be at this point in time. Mm-hmm. 
Well, one of the thing I was really excited to talk to you, and I say this when you're not listening. So, um, you know, you're one of the few people, um, you know, you are a U.S. senator, so I would deal with you on policy issues and, uh, you know, debates in Congress. And obviously, substantively, you're at the top of the list. But, you know, you just know politics. You could have run a presidential race. Uh, so, you know, you are you, you know the numbers and the data. So let's talk about um, uh, part of winning campaigns is obviously having as much of the debate on your field as possible. So uh, the, the the pandemic, the economic consequences of that, Trump's mismanagement of that, people generally thinking that he's asleep at the switch, that's terrible terrain for Trump. He's now trying to turn it into this quote-unquote law and order campaign. Um, I'm dubious that that will work, particularly since he's in charge. But, you know, Republicans have been fairly successful through the years. I think we, we give them more credit than we should about their successful messaging because we win a lot of elections too. Uh, but we've seen this work before. So how do you, if you're the Biden campaign, make sure that you are keeping the issues front and center um, that are going to lead you to the White House? Well, for one thing, um, they can't play prevent defense. You know, nothing bugs me more than watching one of my favorite teams who has a lead um, sit on the ball. Uh, Joe Biden and his campaign have to pivot and punch. Mm-hmm. And they've got to punch with surgical precision into the place that most voters are. And the idea that this president thinks he's going to get away with distracting people from his incompetence by convincing them that Joe Biden represents, you know, allowing lawlessness to run rampant in the suburbs of America is just so ludicrous on its face. And Biden has everything he needs to go after Donald Trump on this. First of all, this isn't a president that respects law and order. He has a record number of indictments surrounding him and felony convictions surrounding him in his presidency and his inner circle. Uh, This is somebody who only gives pardons to his friends or somebody who has a celebrity friend. This is not someone who has, you know, walked the walk of respecting the law. He's trashed the FBI. He's trashed law enforcement in this country. So Biden needs to like get some righteous indignation and go after Donald Trump on his um, hypocrisy on this subject. And, and Joe Biden has a lot of good things to talk about in this regard. I mean, Joe Biden hasn't spent enough time talking about, you know, the crime bill, um, obviously, with, you know, years between then and now, we understand that some parts of the crime bill were not helpful. And they actually contributed to some of the issues that are a problem. But the other part of the crime bill that he doesn't talk about was support for community policing. Right. Was support for drug courts. Was support for um, victims of crime. And he needs to um, play to that strength because, you know, Trump can't have it both ways. He can't say, oh, Joe Biden is soft on crime. And, oh, by the way, Joe Biden, you shouldn't vote for him, black voters, because he did mass incarceration. You can't have it both ways. And so I really am a strong believer that offense is where Joe Biden has to stay between now and November, not defense. I firmly agree with that. I mean, I think whether it's taxes or foreign policy uh, crime, I think too often we shy away from those things. And I think we need to attack them frontally and win those debates, (laughs) not just have them. So I'm curious, Claire, when you look at Missouri and, you know, I agree with you, it's it's a stretch to see Biden winning, but it will be closer. Iowa, you know, which Trump won uh, by a huge margin, uh, may be winnable now. Ohio looks winnable. 
when you I'm sure you talk you're talking to a lot of people in Missouri. Obviously, suburban voters have fled the Republican Party in in huge numbers. Uh, but you know, we're doing better in rural, rural and, and exurban areas. I wonder just what lessons you're seeing on the ground that you think we may see play out. Um, you know, come the results flowing in on the night of November third. Well, ironically, um, the point I just made about Biden um, staying on offense. Um, it relates to this because, you know, Hillary Clinton, um, very unfairly, very unfairly, was painted as somebody who was not respectful of the law, who was uh, touting uh, the law, who was enriching herself personally off of her positions. None of that was fair. None of it was true. But the Clinton campaign um, was so, um, some say too confident that their message would prevail, that they didn't need to get down in the dirt with, uh, Trump. And what I saw in the Democratic primary in Missouri really was illustrative of this point. You know, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders basically tied in the Democratic primary in Missouri. But fast forward four years, and Joe Biden really dominated Bernie Sanders, particularly in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. So part of the problem in 2016 was there was this palpable dislike of Hillary Clinton. I don't get it, but, you know, politics is perception, not reality. And I, you know, I like to talk about the hold your nose voters. Um, The hold-your-nose voters in 2016 voted for Donald Trump, those people who didn't like either candidate. Right now, I look at this polling all the time when I get a chance, and if you see any, be sure and send it to me, and I I devour (laughs) the crosstabs. The hold-your-nose voters, Biden has a comfortable lead right now. Right. Yeah. So, um, and it's those hold your nose voters that will decide this election. Hold your nose voters. And then, you know, people who voted third party last time, right. Again, th- that number is going to be down and that couldn't be, uh, you know, more important. So uh, I'm curious, as you look out uh, around the country, uh, we know um, some of the core battlegrounds, uh, you know, the blue wall that crumbled, we need to real build. But you have a sense, one of the things I'm excited about is just, he's not going to win all these, but, you know, Joe Biden now has Georgia and Texas and Iowa and Ohio, in addition to the core six. Kind of what's your sense of the map, um, knowing that, you know, you and I are talking uh, about 62 days out from the election. Um, so a lot can change. We have, you know, the Brianna Daler uh, announcement, which I think is going to be a big um, uh, moment, whether there's charges or not, the first debate the other three debates, what happens with the economy. Kind of where do you see the map, though, right now? Okay, so I am guilty of being an optimist. (laughs) And um, maybe I shouldn't be after what happened to this country over the last three and a half years. But, you know, people have a tendency to see presidential candidates um, as personalities. And I think Trump's personality is going to be um, determinative here. And I think Joe Biden's personality is going to be determinative here. So I actually believe that Joe Biden will end up somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 electoral votes. Um, I think he'll win Florida. I think Joe Biden will um, win Ohio. Uh, And I think he'll win Arizona and New Hampshire and Maine. And if you start adding all that up, now clearly he's got to tend to Wisconsin and Minnesota this time, mm-hmm. and he's got to tend to Michigan. Um, but I think that he wins all of those battleground states. The only one I'm not sure about are, are Texas and Iowa. 
and probably because I was so close to Missouri. Right. Um, it's very similar in Indiana. Also, those three states are very similar in terms of just the electoral data in terms of who the voters are and where they're located. Um, so I'm not sure about Texas, Iowa, and, um, and, and, uh, uh, Indiana, but, um, people need to remember that Barack Obama, uh, in, in 2008 did, did very well in Missouri. I mean, he actually won Missouri if we counted all the conditional ballots that were out there, but we didn't want to be sore winners. If you might remember, I had right. yeah. exercised conversations with you and Axe about, please let us count the ballots and no Claire, we can't be a bad winner. We've won. Let's move on. Well, um, but I'm convinced we won Missouri and obviously Indiana we won. So um, I, I think it's going to be um, more of a blowout than people realize. I really do think that. Well, from your lips to the God's ears on the Electoral College and on Missouri, I wanted to be a bad winner, too. It was uh, my boss who insisted that we not do that. It still gnaws at me, right, because we would have won Missouri, I think, in a recount and would have been north of 370 electoral votes. So uh, I think he had the right judgment there, but it was deeply frustrating. So I'm curious when you when you look at Missouri, because this tells the story of, I think, our politics in our country. I want to spend some time on the Senate. But, you know, Missouri, you know, 12, 14 years ago, uh, you know, you're winning Senate races. We're, we're very competitive, you know, at the state legislative level. As you mentioned, in 2008, it was a razor thin election that called McCain the winner. I think we would have won a recount. So what has changed over the last decade? Uh, and I, I, it's always interesting. I remember um, caucus night in 2008 uh, when we won the Iowa caucuses. And um, on the way from Iowa to New Hampshire, you know, I was looking at the county results a little more specifically, and I just saw, wow, we got absolutely killed. You probably remember this on the Iowa-Missouri border. I mean, we came in third place, like we were in some counties, we're like 5%. And, you know, some of that was race, I think, let's be honest about it. But it does, it was an interesting moment to me and saw some of the same things in West Virginia later in the year. So what's happening in Missouri and how can we become more competitive so states like Missouri's, you know, we used to have all four senators in the Dakotas. Uh, you know, when you served in the Senate, we had senators in Arkansas and Louisiana. What's happened there and how do we rebuild? A lot of it is um, a very successful waging of the culture wars. Um, you know, I look back when I first, this is how long I've been doing this. When I first got elected to my first office, it was 1982. And I went to a Missouri legislature that was dominated by Democrats. But many of those Democrats were from rural areas and they were anti-choice and they were big on guns and there was um, a place for them in the party. Uh, as our party has evolved and as the Republican Party has evolved, they have decided to wage so much of their political war on the cultural battlefield. And um, it is frustrating because if we waged our battle on the economic battlefield, the Democrats would be in much better shape because people don't realize how many people in rural Missouri are waiting for the check in the mail um, from the federal government, whether they're farmers or whether there is a huge number of people that are Medicaid eligible in rural Missouri. Uh, the, the, the real disparity and whether it's broadband access or healthcare access 
or even simple things about whether or not their roads can get fixed, they are on the short end of the stick over and over and over again. But the Republicans have done such a good job making them think that every election is about abortion or is about their guns or is about who's in the bathroom. Um, this is all what Republicans want to spend their time on. And I have to believe that the pendulum will swing back at some point as the economic realities set in. And frankly, that may be because of federal debt and deficits that the Republicans have abandoned as something they even talk about anymore. Um, there, there will be even more trimming of some of the social programs that the rural areas rely on. So it is, um, but it is by and large the successful waging of a cultural war by the Republican Party. Yeah, well, uh, this is, you know, obviously you look at gerrymandering and that is such a major problem. Now, both parties uh, have blame there, but the Republicans, I think, much more so. But the big issue right now, now we won the House back in 18, incredibly exciting, and did show some strength uh, in some, you know, exurban areas. Um, but in the Senate, you know, our cap is probably 54 right now because we're just not competitive enough in places of the South and in the Plains. So we have to get competitive. So I agree with you that there's a messaging challenge here. Uh, but there also is how to, you know, to, to have, you know, north of 54 senators ever again, you're going to have more Joe Manchins, even, you know. And so we as a party, how do we get comfortable with, um, you know, having a tent large enough to include not just an AOC, but a bunch of AOCs and a bunch of Joe Manchins at the same time? Well, if you figure that out, call me. <laughs> um, I have not yet um, figured out how we convince some of um, the members of our party, that the party with the most moderates is typically the majority. Um, and, you know, there is, it, one of the things that was so frustrating about my um, election in 2018 was there began a kind of chorus online among the very, very progressive people, most of which don't live in Missouri, that somehow if I had just been more progressive, I would have won. No. No, uh, you don't know the numbers right. like I know the numbers. I mean, we killed it in the blue areas of our state. Record turnout, record margins. We had better margins than um, even you know Hillary Clinton and others um, in terms of the blue areas of our state where most progressives are. It wasn't that there is a massive amount of progressives that are hiding out in Missouri and refuse to be found. Believe me, if we would have could have if we could have found them, we would have found them. Right. Um, but it, it was rather that people want um, people. Many people are longing for candidates who are willing to compromise and who are willing to to find that sweet spot where you don't love all of it, but you love more of it than you don't. Right. And that's why um, I think Joe Biden's sticking to his guns about improving access to health care without going, you know, uh, outlawing private insurance is, is a smart thing for him to do. Uh, I think the idea that he wants to add $300 million to police funding, but for things that produce safety and not excesses and abuses by police better training, more mental health training, community policing, the kinds of things that are the police departments that many of whom are operating on less money today than they were, you know, five years ago, desperately need. Right. So I think he's being very smart about not going there, even though 
um, you have to put up with incredible ugliness from some of the people who are purists. And, you know, the purists are, are, um, need to understand that just as we can't get past 54 with the current map, we can't get past 54 if everyone was wildly, um, you know, very far left with some of the things that AOC and, and others have pushed. So I love the ideas that AOC, AOC has talked about. I think she has done incredibly important work for our party in terms of recognizing that, you know, we've got to go stronger and harder, especially against the pharmaceutical industry and other things. Because um, I saw Democrats, David, I saw people in my party protect pharma in the Senate. Right. And it made me sick to my stomach. Right. And I knew it was because of money, the money that pharma provides to our elections. So um, if we can get busy getting rid of Citizens United and um, unite around the things we can agree with and actually get some stuff done, I think that would be the best bromide for our party, um, not the purity that some are preaching. Well, and I actually, you know, it's not impossible because to your point, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 75, maybe it's 80, but it's well north of 50 that folks that are the most moderate in our party and the most liberal would agree on, right? I mean, uh, and maybe 100% in terms of goals or 90%. So this is not impossible. Uh, and I think this is what has to happen for us to be a dominant political party for a couple of decades, if not longer, is we have to be competitive in more places. It's not simply gerrymandering, right? We have to be more competitive in Louisiana and Arkansas and the Dakotas and Missouri. Um, and, you know, we see the growth that's happening for our party and the potential in places like Texas and Georgia, which couldn't be more exciting in Arizona. But let's add to that, you know, let's not just then subtract other places. I mean, I, I think we have the chance here, I think, to be much more dominant uh, than the Republicans do. Uh, but it is going to take conscious work like you just outlined. So, Claire, you were very bullish on the Electoral College. I know you still follow the Senate incredibly closely. Uh, talk about that map. Like, where do you think we may find ourselves when all the votes are counted uh, in terms of the battle for the Senate? I think that we will win the Senate. Um, and, and by the way, all of these predictions that should not be permission to anyone listening <laughs> that they don't have to work their ass off right, right. Uh, for the next 60 days. Um, but I, I feel very good about Arizona. I feel very good about Colorado. I feel good, maybe not very good about Montana. I feel um, optimistic about Iowa. I feel very good about North Carolina. Um, and I, you know, I, it's hard for me with Maine. Um, cause Susan, I, I, I think Susan's in real trouble. Um, but she's also a dear friend and, um, sometimes, you know, politics gets in the way of personal. So I just try to not comment on Maine because she is a, a close personal friend of mine, even though we don't agree on a lot. Um, there's many things we do agree on and worked on together when we were in the Senate, um, and I remember the many times that she crossed over to make things work for the things I believe in. So, um, so I, you know, I think we're going to take the Senate. I, I, I'm not as optimistic about Texas, although it's possible. Uh, but I, I do think that we, we're in we're in pretty good shape. And you know, don't count Doug out. I mean, he's got clearly. I mean, he's kind of in the position I was in in 2018. Mm -hmm. Everything has to go right, and then there has to be some magic fairy dust sprinkled uh, at the end. But it's possible, and people should not give up on him. And, you know, also, 
should not, I think South Carolina is definitely in play too, just because, uh, you know, part of the problem with South Carolina, David, is that Lindsey Graham can't figure out who he is. Exactly. Um, and, you know, voters are very unforgiving about somebody who can't figure out who they are. You are much better off deciding who you are and staying there than, um, you, you know, calling Trump the names he called him and then being Trump's number one cheerleader. It, it's people can see that and they go, well, who is this guy? Which is it? You know, is this just politics for him? Or is there anything there in terms of his personal beliefs? I, I think it's incredibly unusual for the language that was used about Donald Trump by so many of my former colleagues, for them now to be all in for Donald Trump, whether it's Ted Cruz or Lindsey Graham or Marco Rubio, that will come back and, and, and kick them um, before it's all said and done because they, it's hard to fix that. Right. Because it's it's who you are. It's your character. It's your integrity. Well, if there's any justice, Lindsey Graham will go down. No, I agree with you. I mean, I, I used to work for Tom Harkin in Iowa. And so this was a long time ago. And people would say, how can there be like, you know, Chuck Grassley's still there, right? But like Chuck Grassley and Tom Harkin. And Tom Harkin was one of the most liberal senators. And what voters would say is, I actually don't agree with a lot of what he stands for, but he stands for something, <laughs> you know? And so, um, no, I agree. That I, and, and what's going to be fascinating is I think there's a very good chance that Trump outperforms Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. So, you know, you could see a scenario where Trump wins, you know, in South Carolina, it's not going to be a blowout, but, you know, he wins it by six points, let's say, or seven points. And, you know, Lindsey Graham goes down, which would be uh, so remarkable. So, Claire, let's uh, carry your optimism forward. So Joe Biden wins the presidency and whatever Donald Trump uh, says after the election and tries to argue about that, uh, he leaves on January 20th back to, you know, Trump Tower, Mar-a-Lago, wherever the hell he's going to go. And we win back the Senate. Have you spoken? Where are you on the question of the filibuster? I, uh, you know, I have such mixed emotions about it. You know, I talked to Harry Reid this week, right? Uh, and he and I discussed it. And um, as as we are both very aware that uh, our friend and former President Obama took a very strong stand on this at John Lewis's funeral. Um, and you know, I'm, I note that you mentioned just a few minutes ago that you don't see how we get past fifty four. Um, I am. I know what happens if we do away with the filibuster and we lose power. Mm -hmm. And it is ugly. Right. Um, things that are very near and dear to me and our party. Um, I think a woman's right to choose is in real jeopardy in this country if, um, if, if in fact the filibuster is done away with, I, 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 you know, I just see the kinds of things they would try to do if they were in power. I mean, I know the kinds of things we blocked, David. I mean, we blocked a lot of terrible stuff. Exactly. Um, now, having said that, um, you know, Mitch McConnell has almost single-handedly. I mean, the Democrats had some role in this, but almost single-handedly, we're in the Senate. I mean, let me just take you back. This was not that long ago. When I came to the Senate in 2007, the first amendment I passed on the floor was collective bargaining for TSA agents. And the vote was 51-49. 
So we were allowing votes on amendments that were controversial to be a simple majority. And by the way, we were offering amendments and we were debating amendments and we were actually working the will of the Senate um, in, in, in important ways. We weren't, quote unquote, filling the tree, which is a phrase that's used constantly, which basically means a procedural way that the majority can cut off the ability of the other side to offer amendments. And some of this began with Harry because he got so frustrated at the, the delay and the, uh, the obstruction techniques of the Republicans. Um, and he was the one who said, we're going to lower the 60 vote threshold for uh, cabinet positions and district judges. Uh, knowing full well that probably McConnell would finish that work uh, and make it for Supreme Court justices and, um, and appellate judges when he took over. Uh, so I have mixed emotions about it. I get it. Um, but keep in mind what this means. It means that the laws are going to whipsaw based on who's in charge. You know, um, you're not going to get lasting change in terms of the important problems that face our country, whether it's immigration, whether it's health care. Uh, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's the environment, you are going to get a whipsaw and uh, because it'll go back and forth, assuming that one party doesn't hold power uh, for the indefinite future. And I have a hard time believing that one party does hold power for the indefinite future. No, it doesn't work that way. No, I think those are important cautionary notes. Me personally, I've become convinced that some of the existential threats of protecting our democracy, climate change, immigration, it probably requires it. But I think what it does require is, to your point, um, let's say the Democrats win back the Senate and the White House, hold on to the House, uh, we get rid of the filibuster. Um, and then, you know, in 2022, the Republicans win back the Senate and then they win the White House back. They will maximize it. And one of my concerns, again, I'm supportive of getting rid of it now is that will Democrats fully maximize these windows, right? I just think there's a ruthlessness on the other side, um, which again, I don't think we should model them. But uh, if you're going to do something like that, wow, in the period that you have power, you better fully maximize it. And that doesn't mean, you know, you know, if we win back the Senate, we are going to have a very diverse set of senators of different views. So they're not agree on everything. But I do think that that is critical. And I worry that we'll go halfway and they'll go all the way. And to your point about whipsawing over a 20-year period, just because they are more ruthless, they will come out on top in terms of the policy direction they want to see the country go. Well, no, there's no point in doing away with the filibuster if you're not going to go for it. Right. Well, it sounds like a common sense point, but it is something I'm concerned about. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and the damage that's been done to our judiciary, just keep in mind on this, is, is significant and serious and long-term. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to be a judge, when it took 60 votes. If your lifelong dream, like Kavanaugh's, is to be a Supreme Court judge, then you go about your work in a way that shows that you listen to both sides and you care about both sides and that you will be an honest arbiter because you know you've got to get votes from both sides in order to become a Supreme Court judge. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. Um, now, not only do you have to join the Federalist Society, which is the Republican Club, for people who want to be federal judges, but you've got to really try to figure out ways in your opinions to signal that you are on board with um, some of the, the extreme positions that the Republicans insist on. So, you know, we wouldn't have ever gotten Kavanaugh if the filibuster hadn't been done away with. 
presidents would have to nominate people like Merrick Garland. I mean, that's a good example. Obama nominated Merrick Garland because he believed he could get support from both sides. Right. That he could get the 60 votes. And our Supreme Court has been full of people like that who have really honestly looked at each issue without a political lens. I think that's gone now. I think that the courts have now become just as political as congressional um, positions. And even with the lifetime appointments, I think, you know, you've got to really now prove your bona fides that you're political in terms of getting the partisan support. But that's all you need now. You just need the party you pick to be for you and you can be a federal judge. Right. So, Claire, let's... um we just focused on kind of an optimistic election outcome. Um, let's talk about a less optimistic outcome, uh, you know, a scenario where Biden doesn't win and we don't win back the Senate. And I think it's really important for people to understand in most states, you know, Biden's performance and the performance of Senate candidates be closely tied. Now, we saw in Missouri, I mean, you dramatically outperformed us in 2012 when, when Barack Obama was running for re-election. Jason Kander did it in 16. You know, but uh, most of these races will be within a couple of points. What would happen? happen over the next nine weeks um, that would cause, and you know, I don't, you know, like you, I don't really believe in polls. I consume them, but they're pretty durable. Biden's got a pretty significant lead in battleground states. Most of those Senate races uh, look uh, pretty strong right now, or at least competitive. What would happen over the next nine weeks for this to fall apart? And basically the world and our democracy. And so, but the stakes are enormous. And, when, and this isn't just to keep people working. Like, you know, a good campaign spends a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong and not play defensively to your point earlier, uh, but to, to have an offensive strategy to mitigate against that? Well, um, I think we need to keep an eye on um, what's happening in our country in terms of a racial awakening. Um, it could get very volatile um, depending on the decision and the Breonna Taylor charging mm -hmm. and depending on the decision on the charging uh, in the Blake case. You could see um, the kind of civil unrest that plays into the hands of Donald Trump. And that's the thing that worries me most. Um, these protests are driven by the purest of emotions, uh, a deep and desperate desire for people to be treated equally in our system of justice. And it is one I am completely in sync with. But watching like Ferguson and watching what has happened in other cities across this country, the peaceful protests by and large are occurring before the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. And after the sun goes down, there's some real shit bums that show up uh, on both sides. And some of them are far right instigators who are trying to, uh, do this unrest and cause conflict, whether it's through gunfire or fires or looting. Um, you know, I mean, they have caught right-wing extremists doing this stuff. So there are um, a variety of different folks that are trying to promote this view of America as one that is, um, quote-unquote, on fire. So that's the things that worry me. Um, is, you know, and part of that worry comes from David, you know, I was a prosecutor for many years, and I know the law in these areas. And the law in these areas are, are complicated, you know. Um, and it is, um, I think, sometimes harder than people realize 
to get to proof beyond a reasonable doubt uh, in police-involved altercations. Um, clearly, George Floyd was an open and shut case because he was a, not a danger to anyone when they killed him. They murdered him with that police officer's knee to his neck. Uh, he was handcuffed and on the ground. Um, the others are a little more complicated. And so it just worries me. And if I didn't know the law so well, it wouldn't worry me so much. Right. But I understand the law as it relates to reasonable fear when it comes to a police officer. And um, that's not saying that there is not racial bias in what happened in these cases. Um, would they ever have done that to a white suspect that was ignoring their commands as it relates to um, Blake being shot seven times in the back? I don't believe they would have. Exactly. Yeah. So th the fact that they used that force, I think, is in fact racial. Um, would they have been entitled to use that force for on a white person as well as a black person? Well, we don't know all the facts yet. And um, but the standard is, is the police officer in reasonable fear? And um, that's that's tough beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of 12 people. So it, it, it is, I, I'm, I'm on pins and needles about these decisions. I think they will both be charged in some way, and I think that will help. But if for any reason um, police officers are somehow given a clean bill of health over these two incidents, then I'm worried. Yeah. Well, I think the, we all need to prepare for that and, and try and if, in fact, and I, I worry very much about Kentucky. I mean, the Kentucky Attorney General spoke at the RNC. He's now talked about as a potential national candidate. Um, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but I think we need to plan for no charges filed either right before that first presidential debate or right after. And, you know, to make sure that we, uh, starting with Joe Biden and his campaign, but everybody's ready for that. Uh, and to, to basically, because uh, I do think that that is going to cause the country to be in great uh, upheaval. The other thing, Claire, that concerns me, and, and you know, when you are running for office, obviously a candidate's number one job is to, uh, you know, deliver a message and articulate why they're running for the position they're running for and do well in debates and, um, you know, raise the resources. But you were deeply involved in organization. And obviously in a pandemic, just the exercise of voting is more complicated now. And I'm convinced no matter what happens over the next, uh, you know, two months, uh, you know, the Breonna Taylor case, the economy, the debates. Joe Biden's going to enter election period with enough support amongst registered voters to win the election. Um, and even those that intend to vote, very different than those that, you know, aren't going to vote. But, you know, we saw in June a bunch of ballots get spoiled. Um, we now saw a report this week that there was over a million ballots the post office sent out late uh, in the primaries in June. Um, so just organizationally, what do we have to do and what advice do you have to make sure that the number of people who intend to vote for Joe Biden is as close to the actual vote count? Well, I, I do think that there is a much bigger emphasis, and I see this across the board in this country now, on efforts at voter suppression. I mean, the Republicans mm -hmm. have been doing this, as you know, David, for years. Yep. I mean, they started, you know, the Koch brothers started with, through ALEC, which is an annual meeting of le state legislators. Uh, they started pushing this um, voter ID laws and all of that, and we know what they're doing. And by the way, um, voters who they're trying to impact know what they're doing, um, which is interesting because I think there is a psychological uh, impact on people who know someone's trying to keep them from voting, that that makes them make sure to vote. I'll never forget, I had an African-American elderly woman come up to me in the airport uh, in, in 2018 as I was waiting to get on a plane to go back to Washington. And she worked at the airport and she grabbed my hand. She came up to about to my chin 
And she grabbed my hands and she said, you know, I'm old enough to know what they're up to, Miss Claire. They're trying to keep me from voting Hmm. and you don't need to worry. You know, I will vote no matter what. And it just, you know, it, it, it kind of, I filed it away in my hard drive that, you know, the, if they don't think people get what they're up to, that they're trying to find people who are more transient, who have more issues in terms of their economics, who are maybe don't have an ID or the ID does not reflect where they actually live, you know, all of that. They're trying to keep the people from voting who um, are going to be against them. And I think people are onto it now, much more so than they've ever been before. And I think people are going to be much more vigilant about figuring out the safe way to vote um, and, you know, figuring out right now where you live. Um, call today. Find out exactly how you can vote safely. And obviously, the more that you can deliver a ballot safely to the election authorities ahead of time, the better off you are. And the sooner you can mail a ballot to the election authorities where you live, the better off you are. And this is where it's frustrating to me because there's not one national message we can push because every jurisdiction is different. Exactly. On signatures, on postage, on timing. I mean, Missouri is is an excuse state where you typically can't vote absentee unless you have an excuse. Well, this year, you don't have to have an excuse if you're over 65. Um, but there's two different kinds of ballots. There's an absentee ballot and there's a mail-in ballot. Well, if you're over 65, you can request the absentee ballot and you don't have to have a notary. But if you request the mail-in ballot, you have to have the notary. And that's just one example of the complexity that's out there. And, you know, replicate that times, you know, 50 states. And it's really important that people who care about this election um, really pay attention to what they can do to get their vote in early and make sure it counts. And um, then, you know, I, I still think campaigns have to organize door to door. You can door to door in a mask. Yeah. And if you're out there and you want to help and you're in a battleground state, you need to immediately get online and find out where you can volunteer to make phone calls and to do door to door remotely because you can, you know, you can knock on a door and step back with a mask. And still talk to people. And, you know, we knocked on more doors than any other campaign in the country in 2018. And we saw the results. We had massive turnout in the areas where we wanted massive turnout. And so um, people should not assume that there's not still volunteer work that can be done, both in moving our vote to the polls and voting safely. Now, it's a great message, Claire. And I think, um, you know, with, yes, we have a pandemic. We're going to have a lot of people voting by mail for the first time. We've got to recruit a lot of poll workers. There's going to be a shortage. It's all solvable, right? I think everybody out there needs to make their own plan and become an expert on the rules in their own state. So they're making sure everybody they come in contact with understands. Uh, and everybody should do things earlier um, than they've ever done. You know, turn your ballot in, fill it out and turn it the same day you get it. Uh, re- you know, sign up to be a poll worker today. I, I think good organization, um, and again, and that's good organization from the campaigns, but we all need to take responsibility there uh, as well. So Claire, I'm curious, you know, last question for you, you've been very generous with your time. So you had to debate a lot through the years in your various offices and you were, uh, if my recollection is correct, a very strong debater. Um, We have, uh, I think, you know, maybe you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the most important debates in American history, that first one on September 29th. So what are your thoughts about that? I mean, it seems to me, some people say, well, maybe this is like 80. Maybe Biden could win by a landslide and he just needs to convince people. And if he has a decent debate, 
particularly since Trump is saying two contradictory things. Both he's kind of senile and will basically just be slobbering in the Oval Office. And the other is he's a colossus astride the world stage, you know, who's going to change everything about America. Um, but Trump obviously have some business to get done, too. How do you how do you um, think about that debate in terms of its import? You have thoughts about strategy there. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I do think that um, Joe Biden has to really work at his natural tendency to um, explain too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known Joe Biden a long time. I have um, worked with Joe Biden. I have had Joe Biden give speeches on my behalf. Um, I, I, I know that he is somebody who wants to show people the depth and breadth of his knowledge. Um, and I, I do think he's going to have to be careful with that. Mm-hmm. He is entering into the arena with a cheater, a liar, an immoral man, uh, someone who is so far from Joe Biden's pillars of strength that it's not even funny. And if Joe thinks this is a traditional debate where he, you know, waxes on about policy differences, I think he'll be making a mistake. I think he needs to be a pugilist. I think he needs to be surgical but brutal in turning on, um, you know, Trump's not used to having people around him. He is somebody who has done the opposite of what a good leader does. Right. And you saw this up close. A good leader has strength around him that will disagree with him. A good leader listens to different voices. And, you know, he's gotten rid of all those people or they've quit. Trump doesn't want anybody around him that is not pumping up his ego and his narcissism. So um, I think Biden has to be a, a real a puncher in this. You know, he's got to punch hard and quickly and swiftly and not get bogged down with explaining why the new green deal is not really what they say it is or why, you know, he's for something close to Medicare for all, but he isn't. He's got a really, uh, and he's capable of doing this, but it's not his natural. His natural is to wax on. So that was, that's the advice I would give if I were in debate prep. And I'm sure that they're doing that. And I'm sure that, um, and I think expectations are fairly low for Joe Biden. They're a little bit opposite for Kamala. Right. I think Kamala has, is suffering from too high of expectations in terms of her debate performance with Pence. Um, I think we all need to like take a deep breath and quit saying, I can't wait for Kamala to debate Pence. Exactly. It won't be like that. Yeah. Uh, it won't be uh, that, that, you know, Pence will be laying bleeding on the floor when Kamala is done. Um, so we got to lower expectations for Kamala and keep the expectations for Biden low. And Biden needs to make sure he doesn't feel the need to explain every detail of his policy positions. I couldn't agree more with that. Or his record. Like, no one, quite frankly, cares what he no said or did 40 years ago. No one cares what he years did ago. 40 years ago. No, yeah, he- he should not mention his Senate bills. Yeah. He should not mention the Senate. No, I agree. That. I mean, that's what, sadly, I don't think it should be this way. But um, these debates, particularly presidential debates, are not on the level. They're much more performance than policy. Right. It's something, by the way, Barack Obama, you know, I think won five of his six debates, but he really struggled for that reason. It just is not on the level. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, I'm not saying they are substances. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has to give people a sense of what he stands for and why and who's going to fight for. And, you know, some of that can be policy. But uh, this 
is performance much more than anything else. And I think whatever you say about Trump, he's not going to like being challenged. I agree with you. But he'll be ready for this because he understands what it is and what it isn't. Uh, and the uglier the debate is, the better for him. Uh, and, you know, I think that the, and, and I think the one thing Joe Biden has to win in that debate is he's got to come across as tough, if not tougher than Trump. Um, I just think he has to, because I think that's one of the outstanding questions is, is he up to this? Not the bullshit that Trump says, but basically people are scared, right? We've got racial unrest. We've got a pandemic. We've got an economy that's in desperate shape and they want to make sure he's up to this. And part of that will be if you're tough enough to put Trump in his place. I think that shows a lot. I agree. And then the most important rule of any debate is remember that, um, and I learned this the hard way, by the way, um, uh, that it doesn't matter if you know more. It doesn't matter if you're a better debater, if at the end of the debate, you're not likable. Now, that is a very controversial thing to say because everybody goes, oh, likable, that's not important. Well, it is in the debate. People want to have a sense that you are a good guy. Right. And that's where Biden can really hit it out of the park because he is a good guy. Yeah. And Donald Trump isn't. He can do some of this with humor. Exactly. Uh, he doesn't have to, you know, he doesn't need to mimic Trump. He's got to have his own style. So maybe he's Correct. a uh, Southpaw. Um, well, Claire McCaskill, thank you for your time today, uh, for your service to your state and your country. Uh, selfishly, uh, you're uh, early, uh, steadfast, and just incredibly important support of Barack Obama, your voice today. Uh, maybe if you're optimistic, uh, outcome are right. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again in 2021 as Josh Hawley's putting together his presidential campaign to take on Tom Cotton and <laughs> Nikki Haley. Uh, I want popcorn for that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that's what people have to understand. Like, there's a competition out there to be the next version of Trump if Trump goes down. Yes. It's not leaving yeah. us, unfortunately. No, it's not. There will be... Um you know, the guy who, who beat me is, is, you know, he's really upset that Tom Cotton, he who will not smile, got a, a big speech at the convention. And he didn't. So I'm already seeing the scurrying around and the knives are out among, amongst them to see who's the next Trump. And it'll be interesting. I, and let me just say, David, I, I, I was honored to be with you today. Uh, this is the most emotional election, I think, mm-hmm. that people have encountered in their lives. I think there is such emotion in this because people feel so strongly. Um, it's hard for me to believe people feel strongly for Trump, but they do. And I live in a place where there's a lot of people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a time that tap that emotion and do something more than worry and complain. Try to get out there and help. There's lots of ways you can do it. Just poke around online and you can find a way to help. A great reminder. Um, don't fret, organize. Uh, and uh, do everything you can to make sure we uh, remain this, remove this stain from the White House. Well, Claire McCaskill, thank you. You bet. 